Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Leadership 2022. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. Good to have you with us. In this day and age, leadership can be a challenge for a lot of different people. And it's a good thing in a way because there's so many organizations and groups and teams that are more diverse than ever. But there's a terrific update to a book that helps everybody who is part of this equation. It's by Jennifer Brown. She's a speaker and a best-selling author. She joins us now. And the book is How to Be an Inclusive Leader, Your Role in Creating Cultures of Belonging where everyone can thrive. Uh, Jennifer, thanks for joining us. This is actually an update to a book that first came out four years ago. Tell me about the original and, and the changes that you put into it. Thanks, David. And yes, I needed to update the book. So what a different world it was then. And we knew so much less. And I think uh, fewer people were motivated to take on this topic. And now the question is, how? Like it's not the why, but the how. How can I investigate myself, my role in change, the ecosystems around me, you know, the flaws in the system in which perhaps I benefit or don't, you know, depending on which system we're talking about and depending on how we identify. So, you know, the 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 want and the desire and the motivation is so different now. And yet the struggles are still very much coming down to, I think, tactical considerations. Like, how do I really do this? You know, what does that look like? What does it sound like? And how do I, as a person of both uh, marginalized identities and privileged identities, perhaps in my case, sort of activate both of those things so that I can be a part of positive change? Is it also because, I mean, society has changed so much. I mean, there used to be a time when we all felt like, okay, you know, leaders were the strict disciplinarians who essentially got the most out of you through fear, right? We've all had those you know, memories of bosses, all of us of a certain age going back 30 or 40 years. But society has progressed a lot. And I would imagine for a lot of people who still want that incredible productivity, you want your team to do the best. It's not a matter now of just threatening them. No, you cannot lead through that way. You know. The ability to thrive in a system that wasn't built by and for you, you know, is a special skill. And we need leaders who can change that system so that the thriving is possible. And so, <coughs> excuse me, that, you know, that we need to create a different experience for people where they feel psychologically safe, where they feel seen and heard, where they feel like they're a critical part of whatever product is being built, whatever you know, effort is, is under being undertaken. And unfortunately, the system has been toxic to so many of us because it, we weren't at the table when it was built. So really the work ahead for leaders is to shift the way they lead personally and shift their organizations to respond to and anticipate the way that the workforce is changing and the way that the world is changing around them. And is that a, a phenomenon, sort of a cultural phenomenon change <clears throat> in that I think more and more people, it seems like, 
feel like they want to have ownership over what they're doing. And as a result, they want to be listened to, they want their ideas respected. And once you sort of open that door, sure, maybe they're more productive, but there's a there's a flip side to that as well. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's um a lot a lot of openness now and uh, transparency, and that can that can be difficult. I mean, certainly the accountability of working for a company with who with whom your values do not align, that is going to be a big problem. It is already a big problem, particularly for the younger generations that really want to see themselves and what they believe in from a progressive values perspective reflected in the institutions that they work with. They want that pride, they want that sense of purpose, they want to feel that they you know they 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 have a seat at that table and and you know we want them to feel that way because we need the innovation that is coming from these generations you know this is not an optional thing and we need the innovation not just for workplace cultures but we need it to build better products services you know whatever we build for the world in order that it resonates right and so this is a very bottom line concept as well as a moral one which you know i i often wish the moral one were enough but if you know if it's not there's plenty of other ways to look at it and convince yourselves and others that this is a worthy endeavor. When you look out across the horizon and see companies that are doing it well and companies or organizations that are doing it poorly, give us some examples of both. Yeah, <clears throat> I think you know we had a big lesson in what's called performative allyship, you know, over the course of the last couple of years where companies were checking a box, you know, they put the black square up, right? In June of 2020, remember a lot of companies who could not walk the talk. And as soon as people started to scrutinize, you know, for instance, the, the demographics of their board, for example, versus the messages that they were sending out, there was an inconsistency. And so, um, and there was there is now a new accountability, I think, for looking up and down and around to understand all the pieces of the ecosystem. Do they, are they all aligned? And so, um, Yes, I mean, it's been really intense, but the accountability is the piece from that is pushing institutions to take a hard look and to kind of clean house. And you know, this is not work that is just for now. This is literally equipping companies and leaders to flourish in the future. So I, I think of what's happening now is, so what are we gonna do with the lessons and everything that we learned and were challenged by the last couple of years? It was hard. It's um, for companies though that make a misstep, it's going to be very pricey, very costly. You know, if that keeps happening, it could cost you, you know, your your viability going forward into the future. How difficult has it been and, and how much have we learned because of COVID and with so many people, so many teams being separated physically from each other and having to sort of interact and, and, and work together, simply collaborate through Zoom. That's a whole different set of challenges in terms of both accountability, trying to keep people motivated, trying to keep people together, working as a team. Yeah, you know, it's been it's been kind of both sides. You know, I think um, that the workplace was toxic for many of us who didn't fit there, and so I think that coming into a physical workplace, I think, was problematic for performance and for belonging. So for some some of us that, for example, needed um, an accommodation, you know, have a disability, working from our home environment is where we do our best work. For example. Um, and for some of us, you know, black women, for example, you know, three percent, I think want to go back to a physical workplace, you know, 3%. So we're talking about something to be avoided and that needs to improve and needs to change in order to feel like it's a welcoming, comfortable place. And that's in, that's critical for productivity and engagement. You know, but on the flip side, I worry and have worried that, you know, certainly talent that is not traditionally seen and valued in uh, the, the old world is uh, very much virtually sort of out of sight, out of mind. And I, I'm concerned that there is a lot of churn 
amongst the kinds of talent that have been missing from our workforces, you know, in a virtual way. And a lot of leaders and managers that don't know how to lead and manage virtually inclusively. I think that's a whole different level of skill. You know, it's harder. We've got to be more diligent. We've got to be more vigilant. And we have to be checking in in management by walking around, management by Zooming around, you know, touching base, checking in. Um, you've got to somehow, you know, reach people and understand what's getting in the way for them to thrive. And you've got to do that with your hands time behind your back, you know, over these, you know, this virtual setting. And it's hard, but I think it's the ultimate test of an inclusive leader. You know, can you do this virtually? And can you do it well um, without a lot of the cues that we get from being physically co-located with each other? Um, but I am worried because I think that, you know, the people who are the, the loudest, the best at self-promotion, um, those who don't have a lot of bias happening to them every day, they might show up better in this virtual world. And that's not, you know, that's something we've got to be extra careful about that we don't actually lose generations of talent because we are virtualized. And for people who are more introverted or more soft-spoken, who may be of exactly. color or minority or disability, <clears throat> what how, what's a good strategy? Are, are there a set of good strategies you found for leaders who want to be able to inspire and help those people who might feel <clears throat> marginalized get the most out of their productivity? Yeah, I mean, I think leaders in some many cases are the most uncomfortable with speaking about DEI. And I think people get stuck with how do I start? What do I say? I don't want to tokenize anyone. I don't, I'm, you know, I have a lot of privilege. What do I talk about? You know, my, my advice is to just to get started, just to begin to speak about what's uncomfortable, uh, what you're learning, what you're not getting right, perhaps, you know, what your intention is. Um, you, where you are as a learner. And my book is really wonderful with that because you can literally open it up to any page and it's it's welcoming, it's inviting, it's not shaming. It is literally uh, uh, techniques and wording and language and ways to broach and cross difference. And I think once you start to do that and indicate that you are walking the talk, that you're practicing the skill of inclusive leadership, you know, and that you're, you're human and absolutely fallible uh, and that you're humble, to uh, leading in a different way, I think people will follow and um, we can build that trust so that we can then be heard differently. And I mean, I would love to work for a person that did that well. I, I, I seldom have, <laughs> that's probably why I'm an entrepreneur, uh, but you know, that's the kind of culture I wanna set. Is there a certain amount of slack that, uh, that, that leaders can expect to receive if in fact they show, okay, I'm a you know, middle-aged white male, I have a very different set of background and experiences than say somebody who's an African-American who grew up you know, underprivileged or somebody who's got disabilities or a woman or LGBTQ. But by recognizing that off the top and saying, I get that there are differences in our backgrounds, but here's what I'm gonna try to do. Is there some forgiveness therefore? Is there some slack that is given for somebody who may not get the language exactly right? I mean, I want there to be. I really deeply think, and we need to remind ourselves whenever we feel high and mighty about what we know and whatever, like we, there's not a single one among us that has known all the language, all the things to say has always gotten it right. So, you know, we have to hold space and grace for learning all around us and within ourselves, you know? And I think that if we come from that place, then, then we can find the teachable moments to call someone in and say, hey, you know, I just want to give you some feedback on some language, you know, here's what we say, or here's what's said, or here's what we, you know, don't say, or, you know, I love, I don't see color as a classic example. You know, a lot of leaders of my generation were told this is the right thing to say, 
but really color and difference in general wants to be seen. I mean, we want to be seen and heard and um, we don't want it swept under the rug. And so what a wonderful thing to start by sharing your pronouns perhaps, or uh, saying, you know, there are certain things I've been learning that that now I'm revisiting. And I think if we open it up that way, it's with humility, it's with openness, it's with teachability, um, but we all have to participate in creating the learning environment as one where there is um, there's an invitation to change and an opportunity to change without being shamed because it's very difficult to learn from a place of shame. The book is How to Be an Inclusive Leader, Your Role in Creating Cultures of Belonging Where Everyone Can Thrive. The author is Jennifer Brown. She's a speaker, best-selling author. And again, an update on a book that just came out four years ago with some new stuff post-COVID. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us on the conversation. We appreciate it. And congratulations on the book. Thanks so much, David. You're welcome. Welcome back to the conversation. I'm David Schuster in the Russian war in Ukraine. Things do seem to be escalating again, perhaps stung by some battlefield retreats. Vladimir Putin's Russian forces have fired dozens of missiles at Kiev and other Ukrainian cities. The death toll in these areas seems to be going up. And here to talk about the latest developments is Medea Benjamin. She's the author of The War in Ukraine, How to Make Sense of a Senseless War. Uh, Medea, where are we uh, in this conflict? Is it a a sensitive escalation inflection point as some people suggest, or is this just sort of another step in a long arduous war? Who knows what we see is that every escalation brings on a an escalation from the other side when it was the Russian referenda annexing for provinces, then leading to the uh, the blowing up of the bridge uh, that led to these recent attacks. Um, it's a constant escalation. And I don't think anybody knows where this is leading. That's why it's such a grave concern because uh, each side is hardening its position. And we don't even know what the end goal of the United States is at this point. President Biden said that um, Vladimir Putin is a rational actor. That's sort of a political science kind of term, but it suggests that there's nothing necessarily irrational he would, the Biden administration might expect from Vladimir Putin. Irrational perhaps being indiscriminate use of tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, Do you agree with that analysis of President Putin? I don't think that the invasion itself was a rational act. Uh, I think it was a a, a tremendous mistake if it was uh, even thought about in a very rational way. But um, I do think that those who feel that Putin is irrational should be even more concerned about the use of nuclear weapons, which should make them even more determined to have a, a serious shot at negotiations. And for those who think that Putin is rational, uh, then there is also the call for uh, finding ways to sit down together. I wish that Anthony Blinken and Lavrov would be communicating with each other uh, every week, every day, constantly. I think that the fact that Blinken is not talking to his counterpart in Russia is a terrible thing. I think the US is not supporting negotiations, but wants to see Russia uh, truly weakened by this. 
And I think that's where we get the comments that uh, the president said about the possibility of a nuclear war. Yeah, Vladimir Putin said that uh, he's not kidding when he's talking about all options being on the table for him. Um, do you see a particular scenario, um, and obviously this is sort of a worst case scenario, but that triggers Vladimir Putin to go ahead and use tactical nuclear weapons? Is it as some people have suggested, okay, his forces have to go in full retreat and Vladimir Putin uses a tactical nuclear weapon to try to uh, destroy huge swaths of a, of a battlefield? Is that how this develops or do you see something short of that? I see that when there is no off ramp, uh, that the possibility of nuclear weapon becomes more and more on the horizon. And uh, I see that people like the former chief of staff, Mike Mullen, when he talks about the need for a negotiated solution, uh, I think he is thinking of the uh, catastrophic possibility. And of course, if Russia did use a nuclear weapon, uh, we have no idea how the US re would respond, but we know that it would be a huge escalation. So uh, I would not rule out the nuclear possibility, uh, but I think that uh, as we move forward with this uh, refusal to be serious about negotiations and perhaps giving Zelensky the idea that it is realistic that Ukraine could join NATO, could get back every inch of territory that the Russians have taken since 2014, uh, that's just not realistic. And having unrealistic expectations makes this conflict more and more dangerous. Yeah, and it does seem as if the United States has set a certain number of uh, unrealistic or raising expectations for what Ukraine could possibly do in some sort of victory. Uh, what do you see as being a reasonable uh, and putting aside, you know, any feelings that I that any of us may have about Russia or Ukraine? What is a sort of a, a reasonable or would you say manageable negotiated end to this? And what would that look like? I think for the Donbass, it would look very much like the Minsk agreements look like. Uh, and it would have to be adhered to not just having the monitors there, and perhaps there has to be peacekeepers there, not just monitors. Uh, but there also has to be the political side that was never implemented, which means a certain degree of autonomy for that region. I think it means that Ukraine would be neutral. I don't see any way getting out of this in which Ukraine would be a member of NATO. But let's remember, even as Zelensky himself said, with the Western forces supplying the weaponry, supplying the intelligence, training the Ukrainians, it is really a de facto, if not de jure, member of NATO. And I think that will have to change. We have to take into account Russia's security needs if there is going to be uh, a, a compromise that Russia will agree to. Is there that sort of compromise in terms of the Ukrainians that Zelensky can embrace and still survive politically? Or is the domestic pressure that much greater on him to be part of NATO, to not accept any sort of negotiated settlement? Well, that's a good question because we know that Zelensky earlier on back in March, early April, when the negotiations were going on in Turkey, was totally open for Ukraine being a neutral country, said that we would have to give up of the dreams of joining NATO. And now his tune is very different. And certainly he faced backlash from the more extreme nationalists in Ukraine when he said that. And I think it will be tough for him to go back. But that's what negotiations are all about. 
You have to make compromises on all sides. And that's where I go back to the U.S. role, because I think when the U.S. said that uh, when when both Boris Johnson went to meet with Zelensky and then Secretary of Defense Austin went to meet and said that uh, this was going to be a war to weaken Russia. And when Boris Johnson said that uh, we would keep supplying these weapons uh, till the uh, victory, uh, I think that gave Zelensky uh, much more of a um, uh, 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 of a political uh, platform to then be saying that uh, he was not going to accept these kind of compromises. If the U.S. Uh, said to uh, Zelensky, there is a limit to the number of uh, amount of weapons that we could send. Uh, we are starting to face opposition domestically for this. Uh, that um, there, uh, and if the U.S. started talking to uh, the Russians, I think we'd see a very different scenario. In a lot of Western capitals, there seems to be this hope, this dream that Vladimir Putin either you know suddenly gets overthrown, there's some sort of coup, and that Russia, some new Russian leadership, takes over and pulls all the troops out of Ukraine. Is that a pipe dream? Well, it is, and I think we've seen some recent accounting that says that uh, if indeed that happened, and it's very unlikely that it would happen, uh, that there would be the chance of somebody even more extreme than Vladimir Putin taking charge. So it's one of those, be uh, uh, careful of what you wish for. We have seen that in other countries where the US has uh, been involved mil militarily in overthrowing governments and the result has not been pretty. So I think it's quite unlikely. Uh, and I think if it did happen, it might not be what we had hoped for. A lot of people are hoping that the weather, uh, because of the winter and how muddy the fields in Ukraine get, that maybe there's some sort of stalemate that uh, that comes for the next five or six months. Um, do you ex do you think that's a possibility uh, that both sides essentially get so entrenched that battle lines and positions don't change much for a while? Well, I, I think that might be the case, but as winter comes, we're going to see a lot more opposition in Europe to this war. We're going to see a lot more. Uh, suffering for all over as a result of this. The consequences of the uh, the 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 food scarcity will become even greater. Uh, the issues about the energy prices will become even greater. And so I think uh, we're going to see uh, a growing uh, clamor uh, throughout Europe, even in the United States and other parts, uh, to say uh, we need to find a way out of this. We're already seeing at the United Nations. During the General Assembly, small island nations saying, you've put more into Ukraine this year than you've put into the entire global climate fund that was supposed to help us deal with the catastrophes of the climate crisis. So I think there's going to be many reasons why this winter is going to be a very difficult one. And I'm hoping that it's one in which the pressure on all sides is going to lead to uh, some kind of serious talks. We hear the Secretary General of the United Nations uh, calling for that. We hear the Pope calling for that. And we're gonna hear more and more leaders and grassroots people as we see protests happening throughout Europe now. Uh, it's gonna become harder and harder to maintain these very, very uh, divergent positions and drag this war on uh, who knows how much longer. Can the position of Vladimir Putin change much? 
In other words, uh, well, I think so. I, I think there is a lot of opposition that's getting through in Russia itself. We see it from so many people, uh, young men of military age fleeing the country. We see it in more and more news getting through into Russia about how badly this is going for the Russians. Uh, I think there is tremendous pressure on Putin, uh, and um, you know, eventually that pressure is going to uh, either lead to him escalating and doing something uh, very horrific, like the nuclear weapons we talked about, or it's going to lead to a compromise. Adia Benjamin, she's the founder, co-founder of Code Pink, Women for Peace, also the author of The War in Ukraine, How to Make Sense of a senseless war. Uh, Medea, thanks so much for joining us. I, I hope the uh, the optimism that some of us have is, is not misplaced and that at some point sooner rather than later, there is some sort of off ramp, there is some sort of talks and negotiations uh, that can end this then because it seems like the suffering right now is only getting worse. Medea, thanks for joining us, we appreciate it. Thank you so much. And my last word is we have to push the Democrats as well as the Republicans uh, to be calling for negotiations so that we get something out of the White House uh, that is not just constant sending of more weapons to Ukraine. Well said, uh, and that'll do it for this edition of The Conversation. On behalf of Gina Kim, Asher Cofield, John Skidvalako, and the entire gang at the Young Turks, I'm David Schuster. Thanks for watching.